WXXI in the Little Theater, this is Movies in a Microphone. I'm your host, Scott Pukas. I'm very excited to be back for our first podcast of 2016. I've got a lot of big plans for the little podcast this year, starting with today's episode. We're taking a look at two wild, epic, and very wintry films, The Revenant and Hateful Eight. Uh, we have a full studio of guests today. Joining me for this episode, we have Eric Van Dusen, a film critic right here in Rochester. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, we also have Jordan Guerin, a reporter from News 8 and pretty much the definition of a movie buff. Uh, Jordan, how many movies have you seen, did you see in 2015? I uh, don't have an exact tally, but in the ballpark around 100 and 110. So that's more than the average person. Yeah, a couple of years ago someone asked me uh, that same question, how many movies have you seen this year? And I said, well, I don't know. So I started in 2014 making a list uh, of how many movies each, each year I watch, uh, right after I watch them in completion. Uh, not once I'm flipping through commercials on TV, you know, full start to finish and... Last year was a little bit over 100. Uh, 2014 was about 125, 130. So. Okay. If it was below triple digits, I mean, you wouldn't be allowed on here. We'd, no, no. We'd kick you yeah, out. No. <laughs> okay, and finally, we're joined by Nicole Morello. Uh, Nicole is a senior at Roberts Wesleyan and our awesome little intern for the semester. Uh, this is actually Nicole's first day here, and she's right on the podcast, which I think is so cool. Uh, we're pumped to have her here. You ready for this, Nicole? <laughs> you sound ready. Go you sound very ready. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start the discussion with The Revenant, which is now playing at the Little Theater. Uh, you can visit thelittle.org for showtimes. Uh, I'm going to give a quick plot summary to those who are unfamiliar. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Hugh Glass, who is a real-life frontiersman uh, who had the worst month ever, pretty much. He was attacked by a bear, later abandoned by his party. Um, this is kind of a fictional take on this horrible situation. Um, it's from the director of Birdman, which is also a plus in my book. Um, now, we're recording this right after The Revenant's uh, kind of surprising, at least surprising to me, uh, Golden Globe victory for Best Drama. Um, so I'll start with you, Eric. Do you think uh, this makes The Revenant a frontrunner now for the Oscars? Uh, a front runner, certainly. The front runner, I, I, I'm still not sure. I mean, Spotlight, I think, is, is still uh, my Azan favorite to win. It's, it's not my favorite film of the year, but I think Spotlight's probably uh, got the best chance right now to take it. But it definitely increases the odds for everybody in, involved, especially Leo, of course. Uh, DiCaprio is, is probably as close to a sure thing as we can get right now for Best Actor. Okay. Were you surprised, then, that this won last night? A little bit. Uh, frankly, I, I fell asleep before they got to, uh, <laughs> The Revenant last night. Um, but... It wouldn't have surprised me to see Spotlight win, um, but at the same time, um, after Birdman last year, Inuritu, he's he's got a lot of momentum, and this is this is definitely uh, DiCaprio's year. I, I personally um, am not on the bandwagon of, of, of folks who have thought he's been massively overlooked in some sort of a terrible crime against humanity that he hasn't won Oscars all along, but um, he, he's certainly been deserving for some kind of recognition in his career, and he's he's put in the hours on, on The Revenant. Okay. Jordan, what are your thoughts here? Is The Revenant, is this the top dog now? Is this the one to beat? I don't know if it's a top dog. I went early into the season thinking that, uh, you know, way back in the summer, I thought maybe Bridge of Spies could be one. You have Tom Hanks and mm. Steven Spielberg working together again. That one got passed over a little bit. Uh, I saw Spotlight, thought that was going to be, you know, at the time I saw Spotlight, I said in my mind, this is the best movie I've seen all year. And I had seen Mad Max. I, I was still waiting on Star Wars uh, until I saw The Revenant. And I think The Revenant is technically sound I, I think it's one of the uh more advanced films we've seen this year i know that uh you know the way it was shot was pretty unique in that sense but i think in terms of uh directing cinematography i think it'll definitely clean up i think uh shiva will get the the, the hat trick there uh coming off of birdman wins and gravity there but um 
As for best picture, I'm not too sure. I'd, I'd have to agree with Eric here. I think it's one of the front runners. I don't know if it is the front runner. I think Spotlight still has a little bit of weight to carry. Uh, and, and we'll see come Thursday. Okay. Last night didn't hurt, though. No, yeah. it did not. And just to, so Nicole has not seen the movie, so we have a little different perspective okay. here. So I'm not ignoring her by not sure. asking. She's more of my fact checker here. <laughs> um, so, you know, <laughs> something that I thought was interesting, too, I mean, that we have to talk about is the, the bear scene. Um, that was the, I think that's the one that everyone's talking about going in. Um, now what are you, what were your guys thoughts on this? It was to me just, it was brutal. It was violent. It was way longer than I thought. Uh, I'll start with you this time, Jordan. What were your thoughts on this particular scene? Yeah. While we were, uh, setting up here, Eric and I were just chatting about that. And I said, uh, you know, I going into the Revenant, I knew it was going to be a pretty brutal movie. I know it was going to be uh, a little bit unsettling. I didn't know that bear scene though was going to be that, uh, jarring and that, that long. I mean, it's just, it's. As Scott was, or uh, as Eric was saying, you know, if if that was even cut in half the length of that bear scene, it still would have gotten, you know, the effect across. But I, I think uh, it really, really took it to heart there that that, I mean, for the rest of the movie, it shows what this character has gone through, and it and it's just uh, brutal. I think that was the only way you could describe it, Scott. Oh. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about being cut in half. Really, if, if you study the film, the the bear attack is kind of se- separated into two parts. Mm-hmm. And and what happens at at the end of the first section of of the attack, you think, well, if all we see is DiCaprio getting basically destroyed by this bear up to that point, this this would get the point across. And then the bear comes back <laughs> and that yeah, sets right. in for round two. It it, it is brutal in, in a film that that's marked with these these extraordinary violent centerpieces uh the bear mauling scene is definitely the uh the, the highlight of the film i guess mm. you could say not probably not for glasses character but, uh, <laughs> but definitely for the film itself now here's what i'm curious in uh the theater reaction for you guys like when i saw it there was there was a lot of like audible gas and oh man and almost like nervous laughter too like i can't i can't believe this you know what what were you guys reactions from you know others in the theaters that you can remember uh, for me, the, the people that I, I saw it with were uh, pretty silent for the most part. I mean, and I think part of that went to the, the gruesomeness of uh, the different scenes, you know, that opening 10, 15-minute battle scene, uh, you know, kind of just awestruck almost and taking it all in. But uh, I, I think the bear scene definitely did it, a couple gasps there. Um, by the end of the movie, I think, uh, you know, the running length did a little bit in. But uh, I, I think for the most part, it, it was just uh, – you know, again, movie was brutal, so it's it's shocking. But at the same point, uh, I think most people I was with were taking it all in. Not not a whole lot of screams, gasps, anything like that. But yeah, I I, I didn't find any kind of reaction that way to mm-hmm. the bear scene. I did think that people weren't expecting this kind of almost quasi Saving Private Ryan right, approach to the right. opening with mm-hmm. this incredibly violent and incredibly prolonged attack sequence that was just filmed beautifully. I mean, right. I I I, th- I was really impressed with the way that the director moves from one encounter one man-to-man violent scene to another and, and basically shifts the protagonist for each of those little mini sequences so that one guy kills another guy, then the, the victor there goes somewhere else and then he gets killed. And then the victor there goes somewhere else and then he gets killed. It's this weird cascading of violence. And it's so early in the film, you don't really know who to root for. You don't know, mm-hmm. you, you haven't gotten to know any of these characters yet. So it's really intense. And that scene took some people by surprise in the, in the theater I was in. The bear scene, by the time that happened, 
I think we were we we knew what to expect in terms mm. of the level of brutality. Although I do think the bear scene is 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 pretty special, by, uh-huh. even by that regard. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Saving Private Ryan because that's exactly what it reminded me of. Right. And it, Jordan's nodding too. Uh, it was just the arrows whizzing through, and oh, just yeah. even like there was a, almost a similar to the beach scene in Normandy, is that they had the water there. Just that that was amazing. It was just the way they shot that. It, it, it as, puts you in the moment, and I think the fluid camera direction definitely helped. And, and uh, Emmanuel Lubezki is fantastic at that. We saw that in Birdman, uh, those those continuous shots there, uh, long takes, if you will. Uh, but I think that definitely helps you, you know, sink into your seat and, and just kind of let go and, and uh, take it all in. Oh, it's totally disorienting. I mean, again, you we, we were talking about the bear scene. I don't want to let, uh, let that go. But the opening sequence to me is probably from a directorial standpoint, the masterpiece of the film. I think a lot of the film actually has has some weaknesses as well as strengths, but scene by scene, it's filled with strong points, and that opening sequence is just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but that was one reason why I'm, I was glad I saw this on the big screen. It's like, this is where you have to see in movie theaters, just because you want to see that. You don't want to see that. Even if you have a large TV, you want to see that on the movie screen. I don't know if you felt the same way, that this is definitely a cinematic moment. I think that's definitely true for a lot of reasons. Um, one of one of my pet peeves about home theaters, I've got a home theater. Home theaters are great. They're very convenient for a lot of kinds of films. But not only does going into the theater immerse you into the experience in a way that sometimes is necessary, like, and I think Revenant is, is an example of that, but it also helps you focus in a way that when you're home, you're going to be too easily distracted, too easily walk away, too easily allow yourself to be taken away from what's going on. There's a, there's a brutality and a sustained sense of punishment that goes on in The Revenant. That doesn't sound like mm-hmm. a good thing, but it, but it actually fits everything the filmmakers are intending to do. And you really have to be able to immerse yourself and not let go. Don't go to the bathroom. Don't get any popcorn. Don't get any milk duds. Stay there. Watch well, you can the get film. some little popcorn because well, it's always delicious. Get your, get your little popcorn before <laughs> the movie starts and just pace yourself. It's going to take a while, but you need to see this thing start to finish. Okay. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the actual legend, the story of Hugh Glass. I was reading up a little about it beforehand. It's it's really a fascinating read. Uh, you should definitely Google a picture of Hugh Glass. He kind of looks like a souped-up Ron Swanson, just a really angry... A little bit. A little like bit of a Russell mustache yeah. going on, too. <laughs> Yeah, I actually saw it yesterday. I, I did the same kind of research mm-hmm. yesterday. And um, actually, I was interested to see that uh, Hugh Glass's story was made into a film once before in 1971 right. oh, wow, with wow. Richard Harris. Um, I'm forgetting what it's called. You've got it? Uh... Uh, it was something, The Mountain Man, The, the, the Wilderness Man. Yes, Wilder- Man yeah. in the Wilderness, something along those right, lines. Man in the Wilderness. But... Um, and so I mean, who, who knew that, that Glass was uh, such a profoundly um, studyable character on the big screen? But but it's it's it really comes off well here. Yeah, from well, what I read, and this was, sorry to interrupt here, but uh, from what I read, and this was kind of on the heels of the last Oscar season mm-hmm. when Inarito, you know, he won the award and uh, for Best Director, and he, about that time it was announced that he was working with Leo on this new movie, and it was based on the story of Frontiersman Hugh Glass. So I immediately Googled Hugh Glass. I'm like, who is Hugh Glass? It's okay. a cool name, too. Yeah, it's a great name. Uh, but I, I Googled him and, you know, did a little bit of research on it, on, on the, the bear attack, what he went through. Uh, and this it made it seem like it was a several thousand mile journey that he took. I mean, the legend of Hugh Glass did. And the movie, albeit it did go on for a little while there in terms of the pacing, things like that, uh, it didn't seem like he, he made that long of a journey. It was just more back to camp. And I also, one thing I, I noticed uh, that was quite different in the movie was is I think they took a little bit of artistic liberty here and threw in the sun in the movie. I don't know if that was a real counterpart to Hugh mm-hmm. Glass or if he... Uh, you know, did his fur trapping with his company and, and brought his son along or or had a, a, a wife that was killed by um, some military folk there. But I, I think it definitely took some liberties, but I think it, it served the movie well. I think it really uh, 
played into that that revenge mm-hmm. part. Yeah, well, it fit, it fit the story that uh, Inuitu wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think that the sun is is a uh, actual uh, historical no, element. Uh, no, I don't. Um, think so. But what I read it, it, yesterday was interesting. Despite everything that we see in this movie, at the end of Glass's real life uh, journey, he apparently went back to the fort and forgave the guys, oh. as opposed to going out for bloodthirsty vengeance. Yeah, definitely Which not we won't say what happened in the movie, yeah. in the movie but yeah. that's not what happened. Yeah, it, it's, it's probably pretty clear by now that forgiveness is not on the, uh, uh-huh. not right. on the menu for the right. Revenant. Actually, that kind of sets it up nicely. So Nicole and I, before this, were looking at a Time Magazine article and kind of looking at some of the interesting facts. And anyway, I had Nicole highlight some of the some of the more interesting stuff, so you could kind of explain to us, kind of, it's just a, it's a almost unbelievable story. And if you want to give us some of the highlights here. Um, yeah, it was about a 1,500-mile journey that he went on to try to get revenge on these guys. Um, Good memory. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so they were part of a, he was part of a group that traveled up the Missouri River and the Grand River in modern-day South Dakota. Um, and basically what happened was after he was mauled, um, they couldn't carry him, they couldn't take him with them, and... Um, because winter was coming, uh, they couldn't stay with him until he died. No one used a Game of Thrones reference until <laughs> winter is coming, unfortunately. <laughs> they missed opportunity by the frontiersmen. <laughs> and um, two guys said that they would stay with him and give him a proper burial after he died. Um, but after about five days, they were afraid that they were going to die if they stayed with him any longer. Which I think is understandable. I mean, would you die already? <laughs> that's a tough position to be put yeah. in. Though. Yeah. And so they took all of his stuff that he needed, like his gun, his knife, his flint, and like all the essentials of weird- wilderness life. And um, they brought it back to um, the head of the group, and they were just like, they insinuated that he died. And so they left him. And um, according to the article that we had, um, and said that his rage at having been abandoned provided the vitalizing will to live. Um, and he dragged himself to the nearest post, which was like 100 miles away. And um, and then he just had a whole other series of different, like, really violent things where he was like the only guy who came out alive. And then he just moved on to another group and traveled with them. And he was the only guy left. And he just kept continuing on his own until finally he found the group and... You know, like you said, like nothing happened. Like, <laughs> so yeah. the wacky misadventures of Hugh Glass. From yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can make it into a sitcom or <laughs> yeah. like a lighter comedy. A little yeah. bit more extravagant than in the movie, but I think the movie played off, uh, you know, like I said, those artistic liberties a little bit more in that sense where they threw the sun in. They threw uh, the kind of side plot of the, uh, was it the Pawnee Indians? They were looking yeah, for right. uh, their, their missing daughter there, so... I think that all, all played into it pretty well. They did but. kind of fictionalize it, try to make it more mm-hmm. more Hollywood, more more easy to go for. But it wasn't movie. it wasn't over the top though. Oh, no, I think no, it no. played to it pretty well. And it's a true adaptation. Right. I mean, it, too often I bump into people who who see something based on a book they loved or or a or true story, and they say, "Well, it didn't follow X, and therefore it's a bad movie." Right. M- movies have no obligation to follow you yeah. know, history verbatim or or books verbatim. In fact, if they do that really at the expense of the film itself, they're doing it a disservice. I, I think I, I don't agree with every choice that Inuritu made uh, in The Revenant, but I think that in general it's a really strong film just as it is, and, and it's accomplishing something he really wants to set out to do. Uh, it, it, it can be tough to watch at times, and, mm-hmm. it, and it can be a little bit punishing for the viewer even as you're, you're sitting there empathizing with, with Glass going through all this, but, uh, but it's definitely worth it. I kind of I couldn't help but think I don't know if you guys are the same. It's like, what would I do in that situation? Obviously, you're not going to in that die. situation mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because we're different. It's like, oh, I'm you know my iPhone and I can call. But I was just trying to figure out. I'm like, yeah, what would I do? And definitely, like, I wouldn't be able to. 
I wouldn't have the rage or be able to do the things he had to do, which, you know, I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but um, it's <laughs> definitely makes you appreciate what you have these days. Yes. I think, yes. I think that's fair to say, you know, 100 and was it 80, 90 years ago, uh, yeah, almost, 200, almost 200 years yeah. ago, uh, you know, they don't have nearly the technology we had these days. And you see that in the film, too. You know, it's amazing if you're, uh, you know, Hugh Glass and you're in 2016, you have an iPhone on you, you have a car, you know, I mean, it's totally different. Yeah. And now what I'm curious is what you guys thought, there's so many strong aspects in this, but what you thought was the strongest. I mean, there was the acting, the directing, and another thing that, you know, I couldn't help uh really be uh taken by by this movie was just the the look of it um nature was another character in it just the i mean it was gorgeous to look at the scenery um did you guys have a favorite aspect you know was it the look was it the acting i'll start with you eric for this one i think it's definitely the look i i think mm-hmm. that the the acting is 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 fine i i i mean i i have no problem with leonardo DiCaprio winning for best actor i suppose but um the acting to me wasn't the strongest part of the film i think that that the look of the film the way it captures this atmosphere of i, I think it was uh, montana we're talking about um but that definitely a, a part of the wilderness that we're not used to seeing and this absolute desolate mm-hmm. de- depiction of, of what nature's like 200 years ago uh, there, there's there's no shelter there's no refuge it's cold un- unrelenting cold and this guy is sitting there suffering through 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 all of it. Um, you know, the, the the pans up to through the trees to look at the sky at night and during the day. It, it's it's a gorgeous film to watch, exquisitely gorgeous. Even as you're seeing that through the lens of this guy's suffering, it, mm-hmm. it, it's it's very tough to watch, but I- impossible to turn away from. I think it makes it. Uh all the more appreciative for me, at least, to see that the film crew actually went through this. You know, they shot in the natural light. They can only shoot for about uh, one or two hours a day. It was almost like a stage play that they had to rehearse the scenes uh, many, many times. So I think definitely the cinematography for me and the look of the film is is a big part of it, just to, uh, you know, reading up on it, what they had to go through to get those shots and, oh, yeah. and to rehearse the some of those scenes. The making of this film yeah. could be a whole other podcast right there. I yeah, mean, there, I mean, there's, yeah. There's a ton of backstory to what everybody went through to make this film. I'm really looking forward to this on Blu-ray and seeing those <laughs> uh, those special features there to uh, see the interviews. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, Alejandro and read to what he has to say about just, uh, you know, I, I know Leo's been out in the press and he's been talking about the grueling work he had to do and, you know, eating the raw bison liver and things like that. But, you know, you Which have... Which I had that for dinner, too. To, I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll do yes. that. We all these, do that. These days, it's probably just a delicacy. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, sushi. you have a whole film crew behind you that's that's working on this as well. They're out in those conditions. They, I, they, I think they had to go to Argentina at one point, too, because they just couldn't film in Canada anymore. So yeah. They were probably wearing coats, though. Yeah, yeah they were. I'm sure they were. And the way it's shot, too, you feel like you're with him. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of this one scene where he's in the, in the river, in the water, and you're just with him, and there's arrows whizzing by, and mm-hmm. they're just as... It's breathtaking. You're like, wow, this is amazing, and... Um, I, that was just to me the the thing after I left the theater. That's what really stuck out. And there were great performances. Um, and speaking of the performances, we've been talking a lot about DiCaprio. He won the Golden Globe for Best Actor. It's really been the kind of the, a lot of the debate, like, will he finally win an Oscar? But here's what I want to know. Tom Hardy, is he underrated in this? I mean, I kind of was just as captured by his performance. I think Tom Hardy um, suffers from the same thing in this film that Tom Hardy suffers from in almost every film he does. I was having a conversation with somebody else about this a few months ago. But... It, he's so good. He he blends into his character so thoroughly that you tend not to notice him. He becomes part of the scenery, and I mean that in the best possible way. I, I think he's very strong in this film, not in a way, unfortunately, that can hold a candle to DiCaprio and, and this luminous suffering the guy goes through for three hours. But uh, but I think I think he's great. I, I think he's great in most of the movies he makes, and unfortunately, 
he he has a tough time, I think, getting the love. He he's just he's so anonymous in so many of his films. He he just blends in, and it, it it can be tough to single him out. I think I think he's he's too good an actor for a lot of the performances that he does. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's underrated. I know he's getting a lot of love online. I'm not sure through the awards season though uh, if he's going to come out with a an Oscar or anything like that. I know Golden Globes he was overlooked a little bit, but uh, in terms of uh, Critical praise, uh, I'm not sure how much he's getting, but I thought he was fantastic, and, and I agree with Eric. I think Tom Hardy's great in everything he's in. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Peaky Blinders. It's on Netflix. He, he was in the season two there. He kind of immersed himself. in the, You kind of forget it's Tom Hardy, and they play off that in, in terms of the marketing. They show, oh, Tom Hardy's in our show. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if you think about it, he shows up maybe one scene per episode, and there's six episodes in the season. So uh, he, he is kind of blended into that role. But you look at a movie like Mad Max where he's a leading character, and he is – He's Max, you know. Mm-hmm. He's not just Tom Hardy. Where and yet, uh, though, he, he still fades into the background behind Charlie's Theron. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. a little yeah, bit. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like every time you turn around, he, he, the guy can't catch a break. I, the the comment I made a couple months ago in this conversation was, if I were his agent, I'd be killing myself right now because he keeps doing these great performances in these really strong films, and yet he can't build the kind of mainstream commercial momentum that that gets people on the street thinking, "Hey, Tom Hardy, I got to go see that." He's stuck in that tough guy trope, and yeah. I think that's something that. Uh, he differs a little bit from Leo. You know, Leo's phasing out of the pretty boy trope a little bit. Uh, he, he's becoming the leading man now that he's almost, what, 40 years old. But mm. uh, back to what you said earlier, Eric. Well, I, Hugh Glass I, is quite the pretty boy. Right, right, right. But uh, <laughs> back to what you said earlier, Eric, though, you know, Leo, this could be his year, but I don't think he's been overlooked for throughout his entire career. I mean, he's he's got – I just looked up earlier. He's got a – Ten or eleven Golden Globe nominations. Yeah, throughout, throughout. and a couple. Of, he's won in Golden Globes. Yeah, he, it's just he's the won, Oscar. He's but, won. Yeah. He's won. Uh, he was nominated twice in one year for The Departed and Blood Diamond, I believe, uh, for Golden Globes. But Oscars, he's been nominated for I think four or five at this point. Right. So, and that's dating back to like ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, I think kid. his first one was uh, Gilbert Grape. Gilbert Grape, mm-hmm. right? Now, do you guys think? Uh, do you think he is? Was that the best performance that you saw this year? Do you think he should win the Oscar? DiCaprio, this is not Hardy. Or Hardy, if you think that. <laughs> I would like to see DiCaprio get the Oscar this year. I just don't know. I have yet to see a couple of the other movies yeah, uh, same here. Uh, around. But I know for lead actor, the only other one contender-wise I could really think of at this point that I've seen, uh, I would love to see Matt Damon get nominated at least. I don't know if that's going to be He was something. great in The Martian, I, yeah. Yeah, they won for a comedy. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, the that's the fault that the Golden Globe has. <laughs> yeah. Sort Golden of comedy. Globe. Yeah, yeah comedy sort of comedy. Quotes. I mean, it was funny in parts, but yeah, definitely not a comedy. It was, but they have those different categories there that don't align up with the Oscars, yeah. of course. So you never know what you're going to get. Uh, it's, it's a bag of tricks there. But uh, I thought Michael Fassbender, he's, he's been fantastic the past five years. He kind of came out of nowhere. But, he's the only uh, one that's always, always Actually, good. Fassbender and, and – um, Hardy have the same problem. I mean, they keep doing great work in in ways that just allow them to kind of be a chameleon mm-hmm. in the film they're in. And people people may recognize them movie to movie, but they're not really bonding with them as per, as performers in the way that you get, you know, Matt Damon or Tom Hanks. Both of those guys too. They've been in bad movies, but they've never had a bad performance in my eyes. I mean, th- those guys uh, they'll pick up a movie a little bit, but uh, Fastbender and Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, I-, I thought was a little underwhelming. I'm not I'm not gonna. Uh, Totally scrap on the movie, but I, I enjoyed it. But, um, you know, going into it, Sorkin script, Danny Boyle directing, uh, Fassbender, you're thinking that's going to be the front runner at the Oscars. And mm. then you see it, and it, I don't know, kind of left me feeling a little flat. But I did enjoy Fassbender's performance. I really thought he uh, he brought a new 
uh, fresh perspective to Steve Jobs that I don't know if we would have seen in any other portrayals there. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't rip on it too much. Aaron Sorkin is one of our dedicated listeners, and he would be pretty angry. Actually, I like Brian Cranston a lot in Trumbo. I don't know if you guys got to see it, but that was just so enjoyable. Like, And obviously, it's a totally different role than The Revenant. It's hard to compare them. It's yeah. Leo, he doesn't have much dialogue or not even a lot of dialogue in English, although he really nails a few speeches. But most of it is just acting, you know, him out by himself. Just struggling, which it, is right. even harder. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I would go for Tom Hanks. I think Tom Hanks in Bridge of Spies okay. is, is the the role to beat. Well, it's a role I would give it to. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. I, I think that DiCaprio is going to win. I think it's it's pretty much a lock at this point. Uh, in, in a year where there are a lot of not quite sure things, uh, DiCaprio is the closest thing to to a, to a sure bet. Pascal. If it were up to me, though, I I'd, I'd pick uh, Bridge of Spies. I, I think that Tom Hanks in Bridge of Spies contributes another one of those really great. Under undersung performances that that's hard to do as well as he does them. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Captain Phillips. The, the, yeah. These performances that just they're, he's they're just these, too good, the, good all the time. Bread and butter, you know, all American roles that that are that are hard to do convincingly without coming off a little trite, a little cloying, and and yet Hanks just nails it every scene. He's, he's just a, he's a really an underrated actor. I think he, he he gets lots of love. He's very popular. He's this enduring character. Uh, but uh, he's, he's also a much better actor, I think, than people give him credit for. He's liked by the Academy, too. I think that's what you got to take into effect. The Academy has, uh, you know, say what you will, but they, they have certain, I, I don't want to say guidelines, but they have uh, uh, trends that they go by. And if you look at uh, a lot of films about filmmaking or about the industry will win, look at The Artist, Argo, uh, Birdman, even a stage play. They like talking about entertainment, and, and also they like going back to, you look at Tom Hanks, he's, uh, one of, I believe, two lead two. actors that won back-to-back. Right. Back back. So, you know, the Academy's already got a little bit of praise for Tom Hanks, although I think he was overlooked for Captain Phillips, which I thought was a brilliant performance. And I'm really looking forward to seeing Bridge of Spies. It's on my list. <laughs> Haven't seen that one yet, but I, I, early on seeing the trailers, I thought that that could have definitely been a contender. Yeah. The movie itself, I think, uh, left me a little bit cold relative to some of the stronger, more mm-hmm. more vital um, Oscar nominees that we're looking at this year. But, but Hanks really is a standout. That said... I'll, I'll I'll put a lot of money down on DiCaprio winning. Okay. I, I, he wouldn't he wouldn't be the guy I give it to, but um, he's going to get the award. It's DiCaprio's to lose at this point, I think. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny. I actually kind of felt the same at Bridge of Spies, where I loved Hank's performance, but overall, I was like, I felt that could have been stronger. Although this kind of brings the conversation full circle now. Of do you think Revenant is the best film that you saw in 2015? I mean, to me, it's so hard to compare to Spotlight. And you know, I was in journalism. You're in journalism now, Jordan. So mm-hmm. I had a special. You were, you know, wrote for newspapers. So to me, I had a special, special place in my heart for Spotlight. Like I was really interested in that. And I was only attacked by a bear once in my life. So <laughs> I'm not as relatable to, uh, to the Revenant, but yeah. back to the question, what, what do you think is the best movie you've seen in 2015? Well, in my review of Spotlight, I, I mentioned that exact same thing that, that, it, it's, it may suffer from a little bit of critical backlash because mm-hmm. so many people who are reviewing these movies are, in fact, journalists, and they're basically having this love letter to their profession yeah. shown up on the screen. That said, Spotlight is a great film, um, and I was torn for a little while after seeing it between that and Mad Max, Fury Road, for, for which would take the top spot for me. But when I was doing my 10 best list, it just, it just came out to me. It just said, it's got to be Mad Max. Of course, then I saw Carol. And Carol's pretty, pretty wonderful. Carol also playing at the little, it's, I might add, little dot org and, and for sure times. Go see Carol for God's sakes. People need to see this movie. <laughs> uh, the Revenant's going to sell itself. Carol needs a little bit mm. of push, I think. Um, I, I would say Mad Max is my favorite film of the year. The Revenant, I think, is one of those worthy films that people who love film should find a way to see it, especially on a big screen. 
Uh, it, it, it's deserving of that kind of attention. But it, it does have lots of flaws, too. I, I think it's hard to make a movie as long and as complex as, as The Revenant is without having some, some potholes you step into. Yeah. Uh, but, but it doesn't make it any less worthy of going to see. Okay. Yeah, Jordan, it's a tough question, but your favorite movie of the past year? I don't know if I've nailed it down uh, exactly yet to a number one, but I have a group of them. I thought Mad Max was the best one for the, the longest time up until the, uh, the award season came about there. Uh, Spotlight is up there, I think. I, I don't know if The Revenant can top it, but in terms of uh, technical craftsmanship, I think The, I think the Revenant will, will pick up the Cinematography Award, Director Award. Uh, as for Best Picture, though, I think Spotlight's going to take it in terms of cultural importance. I think that's another thing that the Academy looks at in terms of their trends. And you look at movies that have won in the past, uh, Hot Topics, things like that. And, and I know uh, 10, 15 years ago when the Globe was doing this story, it, it was – you know, you look at the end credits in, in Spotlight and see how many other cities it affected. It, uh, it, it's, it's had a lasting impact. So I think that will play uh, a big part of at least my prediction that Spotlight's going to win Best Picture. As for myself, I think I enjoyed Mad Max Fury Road the most in terms of having fun with it and enjoying it as pure entertainment. Uh, and bringing back to that series, it, w- it was pretty cool to see. Um, so I, I don't know even now that you put me on the spot if I have a number one, but I'm <laughs> it's going a to tough say question. You know, top three, definitely The Revenant, Spotlight, and Mad Max, I would say. And I think those are going to be the ones that you know, you're going to see at the top of the nominations list come Thursday. Okay. And I will have a separate podcast on this once the nominations are out, so I won't get into it too much. But for me, I really like me and Earl and the Dying Girl. I liked Ex Machina. Uh, Spotlight was definitely high on the list for me. The Revenant it was one I liked a lot. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be rooting for a best picture. I'd prefer Spotlight. But again, I think movies, it's so subjective. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. I'm glad you called out Ex Machina. That's a, that's a brilliant film. And, and we need more creative approaches to movie making like that. In fact, one of the nice things about both movies we're talking about today is that they're not, uh, you know, Hugh Glass is a real character, of course, but both films are basically uh, original stories, which is it's great to see. Okay, and I, f- I forget the actor's name now. I didn't bring the list, but the the, the one guy that's in Ex Machina and Star Wars, Oscar, Oscar Isaac, Isaac. Yeah. yeah, inside Lewin Davis. Too. No, no, he's in. Uh, no, no, oh, the uh, Donald Gleason. They're both yes, they're both yes, in Star Wars and Ex Machina. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's in that. He's in that, and he's in the Revenant. He's that's like true. a main yeah. character in the Revenant. Like his year was unbelievable, and I can't remember his name now. So yeah. that's one. I can't that's pronounce an, his name. I had a debate over his name. Well, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> Brennan Gleeson's son. That's the way I look. Okay. At General. Yeah. Well, that's why I didn't want to get it wrong. But that's another actor to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. I think another another reason to see the Revenant. So uh, we're gonna switch gears and talk about the Hateful Eight in a second here. You know, any final thoughts on the Revenant that we may have missed before we move on here? It's long, it's brutal, it's beautiful, and it's it, it needs to be seen. For film buffs, definitely, I think it's slow, to see but it. it's worth the trip in terms of pacing. But uh, it definitely is beautiful. I th- I wouldn't have to admit. Okay, and again, one that's getting a lot of critical praise, won the Golden Globe. Uh, playing at the Little Theater now. Uh, the Little Org is where you can check out the t- uh, show times. Uh, follow us on Twitter, the Little at the Little R O C H, and Facebook uh, just to keep up to date on show times. And now we're gonna talk about Hateful Eight, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, which is also playing at the Little. Closes, though, Thursday, January 14th, um, which is going to be really soon whenever you're listening to this. So make sure after you listen to this or you maybe even pause this and go watch it right then. It's <laughs> it's another long one. It's another brutal one. And I thought it was just wild. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is his eighth film. Um, I kind of felt it was a little bit of an Agatha Christie, like, closed-door whodunit mixed with, you know, a lot of classic Tarantino verbiage and, of course, the violence. Uh so we'll start with you this time, Jordan. Where would you say, and this is another tough question, where does this rank in Tarantino's filmography for I you? Was, I was thinking about that in the car ride on the way down here, and it's, it's tough. Uh, I'd say it's about 
in the middle. I haven't really ranked Tarantino's films, but I, I thought uh, one of the questions you would be asking me today is what is Tarantino's <laughs> best correctly. film, and I think that's an even harder one to uh, to crack there. But I, you know, I really enjoyed the Hateful Eight. I thought it was a fun film. Uh, reminded me a little bit of, like you said, the whodunit murder mystery. I was taken aback by that. Uh, I didn't think, uh, mild spoiler alert, that most of the movie would take place in one setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought that was pretty unique in that sense where uh, it it had kind of that play-like setting almost. Um, But, you know... Yeah, it was even broken down to the chapters or the acts, which kind of adds to that feel. First 10, 15 minutes of it, though, that dialogue, you think it's going to be a Western out of this sprawling landscape, almost like The Revenant was. It it would use... uh, the, the landscape and the environment as a character, but I think, uh, was it Hattie's house? Hattie's Haberdashery. Hattie's Haberdashery. No, was it in Minnie's? Minnie's, oh, Minnie's. Minnie's Haberdashery. Yeah. 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 I knew Haberdash was in there. Haberdashery so. is a great so, word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which actually, it's funny you mentioned a play. So I think I read that they're going to uh, make this into a play, or Tarantino wants to. Oh, they should. I mean, it, it's incredibly theatrical. I mean, it, it's basically like a bottle episode uh, of your favorite Yes, TV that's show. exactly what I thought of. Um, and, Except and, for maybe they do the bottle episodes to save yeah. money. I don't know if they would have saved money. To well, watch, watching this, though, made me definitely see why they did all those live reads and in front of a live audience and things like that up on the stage. And, and I can see why this movie was made, but it does fit well in that format as well. Oh, yeah. It, it's incredibly theatrical. And and I agree with you. The, 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 the connections to Agatha Christie and then there were none uh, – I, I every every time a new Tarantino movie comes out, I hear people asking questions about, oh, you know, what what kind of genre should he do next? He's done westerns, done gangster movies, and and people talk about sci-fi or want to see him do a Bond movie. Uh, nobody ever talks about just doing a straight straightforward mystery. Yeah, and this is probably as close as he may ever come to to dabbling in that genre. It, it, it's it's an interesting way for him to play with the dialogue that he loves so much and still work in this incredible amount of violence, which is very germane to what's happening in the film. But it's nothing you go to see in an Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> no, and the, it, the it was very violent, but it was a different violence than The Revenant. It was more, it was classic Tarantino. It was almost, I don't want to say cartoonish, but it was almost like where it was just it's, the blood it's splatter. And, uh, if you can call it fun, I mean, yeah. the, the Revenant is a serious look at at, at the brutality of, of man against man or bear against man. Uh, <laughs> Hateful Eight is is almost celebrating it in, in a in a goofy. Uh, almost madcap way and and that doesn't make it any less intense to look at but yeah. the, the tone is everything in mm-hmm. this film it, it 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 manages to have this sort of almost lighthearted spirit about what's going on even though what's happening is definitely not lighthearted Mm-mm. yeah we were talking about performances in the revenant i loved a lot of the performances here uh samuel L. jackson in particular like every single monologue he just he was killing me like I was laughing, but it wasn't like a laughing like a joke. It was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this scene. Well, you talk about people who don't get love. I mean, Samuel Jackson's yeah. done over 100 movies. He's done six Tarantino movies now. And and year after year, this guy is is one of our more dependable performers in, in movies. He, he's not always as brilliant as he might be in some films, but but he's such a go-to character. You know what you're going to get from him in terms of this, this intensity and this, this relatable quality to any character he's playing. Um, I mean, th- this past year he was in uh, Kingsman, uh, Chirac, and, um, and and Hateful Eight. He- he's he's just brilliant and diverse in all of them. But but he still brings this great quality, and it's it's no wonder he's been Tarantino's go-to guy more often than anybody else. And actually, Walter uh, Goggins too, who is in uh, Justified, Justified uh, The yeah. Shield, Walton Goggins, right? Walton, uh, Walton yeah, excuse right. me. Uh, yeah, I messed. I did a radio tease too, and I had to do it a bunch of times. I kept calling him <laughs> Walter. Sorry, he is also a listener. I apologize, but I loved his. He was unbelievable. He played a Confederate who claimed he's like he's the sheriff in this neighboring town. He was going there. And yeah. He he was another guy. Who was just <laughs> he was just cracking up. Like any anything he said was just so energetic. 
dramatic and it was just so captivating. Yeah. How about you, Jordan? Did you have a favorite performance here or maybe a favorite couple performances? I uh, I, I really liked the characterization of Walton Goggins from, from start to finish in terms of when his character is introduced and what he becomes at the end of the film. I won't spoil anything, but uh, I really liked his almost uh, – redemption arc, if you will. Uh, but I was really surprised, I did mention Eric, uh, I, that Sam Jackson had as big of a role as he did. Uh, I kind of thought Sam Jackson was going to be more of a supporting character like he was in some of the other Tarantino films, unlike Pulp Fiction, but, uh, you know, Kill Bill Volume 2, he was in it for a, a scene or two. You know, he was the narrator in Glorious Bastards for a scene. And, you know, so you never know what you're going to get with a Sam Jackson Tarantino uh, duo there. But I was really pleasantly surprised by how much of a role he had and how much weight he carried in this film. And, and I thought he pulled it off perfectly. I mean, as Eric said, uh, Sam Jackson can pull out some great performances. And I think it all really depends on who he's working with. Uh, you know, he works a lot. You look at his IMDb list, he's got a lot of movies that come out, whether they're B-movies, C-movies. three or four movies a year straight, without blinking. Yeah. Well, he'll be in an Oscar-nominated film, and he'll be in a, a straight-to-video film in the same year. And, you know, total opposite performances. Uh, so, again, I, I think that really rung true in Kingsman. You look at Kingsman, mm-hmm. it's such a diverse character that he's playing. You don't really see Sam Jackson in that sort of role. At least I haven't in the past couple of years. But I, I think uh, here in The Hateful Eight, uh, he almost became the leading man for me. I really enjoyed his performance. I felt like he was the lead, even over oh, yeah. Kurt Russell. Yeah. It, it, it's a true ensemble cast, but but Jackson's definitely um, mm-hmm. the lead. What, but the, the actor we haven't brought up yet, and we really need to, is Jennifer Jason yeah. Lee. I mean, what's great about Tarantino, among many things, I suppose, is, is, is his habit born over the years of, of taking relatively obscure actors by today's standards and, and vaulting them into the limelight again with these really vibrant, interesting performances. And although Jennifer Jason Lee has never gone away, she's been a continuously working actress, doing great work time after time, uh, she shows up early in the film almost almost quiet, almost anonymous in the film, and but has these great facial expressions. She's communicating so much without saying mm-hmm. hardly a word. And and as the film goes on, I don't, th- I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say that her her role becomes magnified, mm-hmm. and and she plays a much stronger part than you might have expected. Although you're seeing her at the beginning of the film, and you're thinking, "Man, it's Jennifer Jason Leigh. I really hope she gets more out of the film than just what she's got so far." And sure enough, she just picks up steam, and she's just amazing to watch. And she's I, not just the prisoner in, in the movie, like you're led to believe in the first couple of minutes when you see her there, and she's kind of in the background. You know, she does some funny things in the background with her face, things right. like that, of course, but. Uh, yeah, she definitely comes to the forefront a little bit in the third act of the movie, I would yeah. say. But but there's hints at it all along, and that's mm-hmm. what's great about it. I mean, it's not just facial expression. It's the way she inhabits this character from the earliest scenes when she's got almost nothing to do except really kind of get hit in the face <laughs> by her abusive uh, captor, mm-hmm. Kurt Russell's character. Uh, but you, you see her reactions. You see what she's bringing to the role. You can tell she's got more going on than she's telling. And and you can tell that she's got more to say and more is going to come out as, as the film goes on. I think what struck me is just she was having so much fun with it. Like oh, yeah. She was just having a blast. And it's... I mean, it's a strong role. It's a good role. Um, now, I do want to get into a part here, which will be a little bit of a spoiler. So if you're listening, spoiler alert. maybe <laughs> tune down for a few ones. Um, and it's, it's something that I thought was kind of a surprise. And actually, you can see it in the opening credits. Um, maybe you guys know what I'm talking about. Is uh, Channing Tatum's role, mm-hmm. which I did not know he was in. And it was right in the opening credits. So I was kind of like, oh, I didn't know he was in that. And I was kind of waiting for him. Um, were you kind of surprised by his appearance, which really marked the the explosion of violence uh, for this movie? I, you know, I knew Channing Tatum was in this film. I don't know what capacity he was going to be in. Uh, the friend I saw this with uh, just laughed when he saw Channing Tatum come up in the title card there in the, in the beginning, and I, I kind of, 
you know, snickered at that. I, I knew he was going to be in it again. I, I figured I figured that he would be towards the end of the film or in one of those pop-up roles, which he literally, spoiler alert, yeah. literally was in this movie. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think I, I'm really glad that they went back and did that little bit of flash. I know we might talk about this in a little bit, but that flashback scene was like a 15, 20-minute flashback there and kind of really showed who his character was, why he came into the fold. And uh, he plays well, a big everything part. everything you're seeing up he, to that he's, point. Yeah. You know, that's it's kind a of big a turning point in the mystery. Mo- yeah. Oh, yeah, and that's a big turning point in the movie and, and part of the mystery. Uh, I think one thing I really liked about this film, and, you know, it's it's labeled the hateful eight. You have hateful characters. And I really thought that the major point in this film was everyone is so deceitful. They're not really hateful. They're not – they don't have anything about them that you look at them and you're just like, oh, I hate that guy. Or this guy d- has done things that, oh, he just – Although a lot of them are, like, him. horribly racist or horribly misogynistic. They're, they're, all, or... they're all terrible people, but I think <laughs> yeah. deceit plays a big role in that. And I think that comes from the very beginning, as Eric was saying, with Jennifer Jason Lee's character. She's hiding something. She's clearly hiding something. You don't know what she's done uh, in the past, but, you know, Kurt, as Kurt Russell's character says, you know, she's wanted for murder. But it seems like throughout the movie, until you actually find out what's going on, that she's done a little bit more. So, Yeah. No, I agree. And and uh, The Deceitful Aid, unfortunately, doesn't rhyme very no, well. No, the Hateful Aid's going to be a better <laughs> title. Uh, the, the, but these aren't – one of the great things about Tarantino movies time and time again is that you can show these despicable characters doing mm-hmm. horrible things to other people. And yet the way they uh, explain themselves, the way they just inhabit their characters and, and talk about life – you find yourself being drawn to them anyway. It, it, it's hard to hate the characters in The Hateful Eight. You don't like them. You certainly wouldn't want to be trapped in a cabin with them for a few hours. But but, but at the same time, there is a certain charm, mm-hmm. a certain likability to the way they carry through their actions in the film, even though what they're doing is, is so ridiculously awful. Well, you look at Walton Goggins' character, and, and oh, yeah. he and himself, you know, He's not a person in 2016 that would be well liked. I think in the way he speaks, we'll put it that way. I, you know, uh, keeping it PC <laughs> this is here. True. But, uh, no, but then he turns it around a little bit. I mean, he does charm you. He he did captivate. I think certain audiences oh, sure. in that film. He's getting a lot of online praise. He's kind of the uh, unsung hero of this movie, and, and he does that in everything he's in. Though I mean, I don't know if you've seen Justified at all, but he certainly plays. He was the, great in the Shield too. I, I the Shield, yeah. He's gotten a lot of. Uh, uh, Sons of Anarchy had a guest bit there, yes, too. Yes. And he's an Oscar winner for a yeah. short film that he made mm-hmm. a few years back. Oh, okay. I did not know that, actually. Oh, that's that's interesting. Early 2000s, I think. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and he uh, – well, it's it's funny you brought up the, the, the lies, the deceitful part. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that was the best part. It's like, who's lying? Who's doing that? There's so many stories, especially Samuel L. Jackson's character who goes on these long monologues. It's like, how truthful is this? And I mean, obviously, one of the running jokes was that he had the Lincoln letter, mm-hmm. um, which I won't spoil. It was kind of a, it was kind of a whole funny running gag throughout. But uh, well, you're right, though. I mean, without giving anything away, there there are deceptions upon deceptions in the film. And and one of the interesting things about it is that even as we're having things explained to us in the form of that flashback that mm-hmm. begins to piece together the elements of the mystery, and we're wondering what what's going on here. There's still elements of mystery, elements of, of lies and deception, and right up until the very last few scenes, you, you still can't really trust everything you're being told. And and within the chaotic environment of that cabin, that's okay. I mean, often the unreliable narrator can become kind of a frustrating element in, in movies, but but in this case, it just it just adds to the sense of sort of. Uh, bedlam that goes on in the film. That there's you can't trust what anybody's mm-hmm. saying to anybody else, but it doesn't really matter because they're trying to kill everybody anyway. Yeah, you have a group of unreliable people here, and I think at one point Sam Jackson uh, and Kurt Russell, they you know they stick up three of the different people there, and they say uh, you know person A, B, and again not to give anything away, person A, B, and C. Uh, you know it's pretty mm-hmm. meta in that sense. You did something. We're going to find out which one of you did it by process of elimination. So it's you know it plays off that again deceitfulness and. 
And at the same time, you look at Sam Jackson's character, he might be lying to you in certain aspects of the movie. Uh, again, not to give anything away. Uh, I think Kurt Russell's character was really the only one, other than him hitting women, I don't think he did anything too despicable in this movie. That's interesting. He just wanted point. to hang people. He just he just was the hangman. I he's mean, the he closest just... to the honorable guy in the right, film. Right. I mean, he's got this code of ethics that he lives by and, and isn't going to vary from that. He doesn't lie to people. He just, you know, he'll beat you up. He'll shoot you, but he's not going to lie to you. Okay, now we're going to wrap up soon. Um, actually, I didn't write it on the sheet, but I can't leave without talking about the score for this movie, which was just really incredible. Uh, you know, what were your guys' thoughts on that? We'll start with you, Eric. That was, it was wonderful, and and you know, Ennio Morricone, he, he's he's this incredibly talented uh, artist who who hasn't gotten any love for the last what 20, 30 years, forty years almost. Yeah, I think. and when when Tarantino thanked him last night in the Golden Globes, uh, it was it was long overdue, even though you know he, he used some some language that I guess he got some trouble for it later on. <laughs> uh, but but I kind of go along with him when he when he says things like. Um, he wants to 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 break film composer uh, out of the, uh, the 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 disrespectable uh, category that it's been in maybe for too many years. But th- there are a lot of great talents who who do nothing but film. I mean, we got John Williams, we got Ennio Morricone. It, th- these are true artists, and and it, it's nice to see him get the love they deserve. I, I think he, he it's brilliant in Hateful Eight. I think. Um, I wish I'd, we'd heard more by him over the years. Well, a good score can elevate a movie like Hans Zimmer and the different Christopher Nolan ones, Inception. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's one of the, like I love that film. I love I really like this film, and that's one of the things that stand out. It's like this is a really good score. It just adds so much, and it, it's sur- surprising, a little frustrating that it's so underrated. It blended in really well too. I think Tarantino plays music as a. a I mean, he incorporates it very well into his films, and he incorporates it differently in each film too. Uh, you look at Inglorious Bastards. I, I'm not sure how much of a score there was in that film. But then you look at a film like Django and you have uh, uh, different uh, – I think Anika Morricone did a piece for Django – or they they uh, did a remix of one of his older songs there, used some of his uh, old right. stuff from Spaghetti Westerns. But, uh, you know, had some music from the RZA. I think Rick Ross even came out at mm-hmm. one point. So, you know, that was a little bit over the top. They did the same thing in Kill Bill a little bit. But I think this, it blended in very well, but it, it wasn't too flashy. It wasn't – too hidden, but it, well, it played it in, and it, it fit the themes very well. Right. Mm-hmm. I, what was interesting about this film is that, in, in so many ways, it, it was kind of a more restrained departure from a lot of his excesses. I mean, there are plenty of excesses in the Hateful Eight, but but whereas Django would seem to tap into this this love of old westerns, Hateful Eight didn't feel that way to me. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like a pastiche anymore. I mean, I think if anything, he's being inspired by the mystery idea and taking that into a different direction. But whereas his earlier films were all full of references to, you know, karate movies mm-hmm. or, or gangster movies or shoot 'em ups, uh, and then Django felt like that. It felt very much like it fit into that idea of of this, this genre salute. With Hateful Eight, it feels like he really sort of found a center that 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 didn't require him to re- refer back to so many other genres and films. But at the same time, he brings Ennio Morricone in and and delivers something really kind of soulful and tuneful that, that fits within the the genuine western that he's trying to make. He doesn't often use original scores for his films either. Again, he takes a lot know, of sampling. He, yeah, yeah, a lot of sampling, a lot of a lot of uh, compiled soundtracks, if you will, of his own music. And I know I think uh, I watched Kill Bill Volume 1 recently, and I know the RZA produced that one. Mm-hmm. He did the score for that. But, again, that used uh, a couple of different artists, songs, things like that. But uh, I, I thought I thought this one, I think, blended is a good term to use. But yeah. I, I, I like the original a, it's score. It's so good. Like, it's something that I even want to listen to, like, as mm-hmm. I'm writing or doing something. Sure. It's just as catchy. So we're going to wrap up here. Final thoughts on uh, anything that we've discussed. Revenant, if you want to give a shout-out to your Twitter handles or anyone at home that may be listening, the millions that are listening now. We'll start with you, Jordan. Any final thoughts here? 
Uh, no, I just uh, talking to Eric in the hallway here. I think The Revenant is the better movie in terms of being put together, uh, which was surprising for me. I thought Tarantino would come out with a, a pretty heavy hitter on this one, but I think Hateful Eight was definitely more enjoyable. I had more fun with Hateful Eight, and you know, a lot of people look at it; it's entertainment, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to take it for both sides, but you can appreciate the the craftsmanship and the artistry in The Revenant. I think, uh, but yeah, you know, I on social media I talk about film in, in addition to. Uh, my new stuff I have going on. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Jay Guerin, J-G-U-E-R-R-E-I-N. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I, I throw out some film reviews on there every now and then. His tweets are excellent. I can I can vouch for them. I'll look that up. <laughs> uh, to me, um, I was I was struck by how close together these films were released and and how much they have in common in so many different ways. The, the, the wintry themes, the length, the violence. Um, but at the same time, they they couldn't be more different. Uh, uh, I think you're right, uh, Jordan, when you talked about how uh, Hateful Eight is a movie to be enjoyed. The Revenant's a movie to be admired. I think that The Revenant is, is it, it aspires to art in a way that Tarantino just wants to have fun. I mean, it, it doesn't stop him from making um, highly structured and, and carefully crafted films, but his his love of what he's doing at that moment is evident in every frame of every film he mm-hmm. makes, really. The Revenant is is a study. It's a study in pain, it's a study in violence, a study in, in, in almost this, this brutal sense of torture that gets inflicted on one man. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's it's a really a wonderful thing to look at and a really interesting film to to sit through. Okay, and I will add, I've been reading Eric's reviews for a while, so you guys should definitely check them out. They are fantastic. And Nicole, we will end with you. Did we convince you to see these movies? Are you going to go to the little and watch these movies now? Yeah, probably. <laughs> she has you to have to say you yes. Yeah. You're contractually obligated to say yes. <laughs> we'll drop you off on the way home. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to my guests again for joining me, Eric Van Dusen, Jordan Guerin, Nicole, Nicole Morello. Um, you guys can uh, check out all our Twitter accounts. You can follow them. Check out their work. It's great. Movies in a Microphone is brought to you by WXXI and The Little Theater. Um, you can check out these films and much more on thelittle.org. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter at the Little R-O-C-H, and Instagram, which is the, just The Little Theater. Theater spelled R-E. People should know that. It's always tricky. And as always, remember, today's a good day to take a little break. <laughs>